And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or you could be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country or possibly on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any one of the other myriad, myriad, I say, ways that you could listen to The Green Majority on this week's episode, which pop quiz for my co-hosts in the, in the studio here, uh, Stefan Hostetter and Kevin Farmer making a uh, brief cameo appearance today uh, in the middle of his vacation because he just couldn't stay away. He loves us too much. <laughs> pop quiz, co-host. What episode is today? 475. What what base? <laughs> base 10. Base 10? I don't yeah. know. I still don't know. Uh, I wouldn't know in base 8. I don't know is actually closest without going over according to those rules. So oh. 461. 461, folks. And Kevin has been here since four, four, uh, since number two. So since he's been, yeah, since number two. This is Kevin Farmer's 460th episode. Damn. Well, minus a few hiatus. Hiatai? <laughs> I think it's hiatai, yeah. Uh, so we have uh, some fun today uh, on the show. Um, we're going to only do one interview today because there is a bunch of news I wanted to talk about. So we uh, we had two interviews planned for today, but they were both pre-recorded. So I'm, I can, that also allows me to. That, that means that I did uh, bump one to next week, but it means that I can also preview it. Uh, so next week we're going to be speaking uh, to a uh, design firm about green building and design. Uh, I'll be making some tweet posts about that with some more details. And we'll also uh, be putting out a video uh, as we with today's interview, there will also be a video version. Uh, today's video version, uh, uh, or today, sorry, today's interview, of which there is also going to be a video version, is with uh, Dr. Gordon Edwards, who's the head of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. Gordon Edwards has been on the program, I'm going to say, three times before. Been in the studio twice. Been on the show three times before. Uh, today, however, is uh, is different because um, we'd had him on the show before. Uh, talking uh, before we were doing video, I wanted to get him on, and really there there wasn't a particular thing. I just kind of you know we like to when we have speakers that we like, uh, I like to get sort of a at least one sort of video version on them there, so there's an additional copy for people to watch. And so I didn't really have any particular uh, questions for him. I mean, I did, but I really just I really when I asked him when we when we sat down and it and it's sort of funny how it turned out. Uh, but what I asked Dr. Edwards uh, when we sat down was uh, I just kind of want to know. Like, how did you get into this? Like, tell me about your background. And what I was thinking was that, you know, he would uh, he would tell me the story. And usually when I ask people to just sort of, you know, do their bio and tell me about how they came to, to where they came, you know, we're talking about a couple of minutes, two minutes, sometimes three minutes, um, completely uninterrupted and uh, without any provocation and no further questions. Uh, Dr. Richards gave me a 30 minute answer to my one question. Uh, every bit of it is completely fascinating. And basically, like, he just basically explains the history of, of how he came to this through what he was learning. So it, it ended up being an exceptional interview. It's way too long to play on the show. Uh, but every minute of it is juicy and good. There is not a wasted moment in the entire interview. So we're going to play sort of a highlight selection of his interview on the show today. If you want to hear the full interview, it's uh, almost 32 minutes long. Every minute of it is great, though. Uh, that will also, I'm publishing sort of the, the, the version that we're going to play on the air today with a whole bunch of infographics and additional information so you can sort of see the things that he's talking about and then there is also going to be an uncut version uh, that is full length so if you do enjoy today's interview you want to hear more of his comments uh, please do go to the website and there will be a link to our youtube page where that will be listed as well uh, without further ado, though, as I said, we only have one uh, interview today. And the reason for that is there's a lot of news. First thing up uh, that I just wanted to talk about before we get into our interview and before we go to our first break uh, is really two things. And then we have a number of things we want to leave. The first one <clears throat> is NASA's big discovery. Now, I didn't prompt either of my co-hosts uh, 
at all that we were going to talk about this, but I'm assuming that one or both of them uh, read the news about the Kepler discovery. So basically, uh, they have the found uh, what is colloquially being called Earth 2.0. Is it a, literally? Of course, it's not. Uh, what they mean by that is that it's a planet that possibly could, in the future, and may have in the past, at least had the candidate the, uh, some of the the requirements necessary to potentially contain life so they're they're not saying that they think they found life what they're saying is they've found a planet that is in the rough region space uh habitable zone if you will distance from the sun day night cycle all those types of things uh that could potentially be a place that theoretically uh, we could have another Earth-type planet. Uh, now, that could mean at some point in the distant past or future. It also could mean that it would be a potential candidate for something like terraforming, which is complete science fiction at this point, but is not outside the realm of science. Uh, and it's it's gotten a lot of people really excited. Uh, and I just wanted to, to know if uh, if you guys thought my, my question on this was, do you think that this means we can give up on climate change now? Should we just invest in space exploration, as uh, uh, Dr. James Hansen said when I interviewed him years ago? Stefan? Uh, well, I was going to start with, that means there might be intelligent uh, beings in the universe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've found none on Earth so far. Uh, maybe, well, you know, dolphins, I'll give them that. Uh, maybe this is where dolphins came from. Uh, I, of course, it doesn't mean that we should give up on uh, on on saving our one planet. Uh, you know, there's that Earth, there, is it the Canadian Climate, no, the Coalition Climate Lobby. Canadian Citizens, citizens there we go uh, who has the earth earth first or earth uh, earth two campaign right now which is basically being like instead of finding other places what if we cared where we live now um and i think that's obviously something we have to we have to do uh but what is good about this i think is anything that gets us excited about uh about science and about exploration uh, sort of science and sort of this exploration technology sort of things like this are are, are a big part of that a big way of actually getting you excited about science um is is good really because uh, if or if humans need a way to like sort of put all our energy into something, uh, if it's it's better to be space exploration than it is you know bombing ourselves and finding ways to uh, finding more ways to buy more cheap things, yeah. uh, which is what we're really good at right now. So yeah, the more energy we can sort of put into you know anything productive at all, rather than destructive, which we're going for now, probably is is for the better. That does not mean we should just give up on Earth though. Yeah. Uh, so that and it was funny. Like uh, we actually interviewed Dr. James uh, Hansen quite some time ago, and and I've always told that story because I loved it. Because when I asked him, you know, what at the end of that interview years ago, it's actually so old that it's not currently available online. You may have a copy of it if you were subscribed to the podcast at the time. I do still have it. it just, it just didn't make the transition to the uh, to the new website uh, just out of pure lack of manual labor. Uh, however, it does exist, and in that, I've I've loved telling the story that the last question I got to ask him, uh, famous NASA scientist at the Space Goddard Institute, um, was my last question was kind of I meant it sort of as a throwaway joke question, I'm, and I'm not entirely sure if he was answering seriously or not. But he sort of I said, you know, what if we had one technology or one you know the NASA was really going to pump all its resources into to avert you know, climate disaster, what would it be? And he leaned in and, and when his super deep kind of old man voice said, and I'm still to this day, not sure if he was being sarcastic said space travel. Uh, and he, and with no further comment, and it was great. And I've always said that. And the reason I mentioned that now, aside from the fact that I, that I love that story was that the other thing I wanted to get about here before we go to our, our break and, uh, and get right into the interview with, uh, about nuclear, the history, basically what, you know, how, uh, uh, Gordon Edwards became an anti-nuclear activist was another, uh, 
article that's been making the rounds uh, to hilarious effect in some uh, areas uh, in that sort of sixth sense of humor sort of way uh, was Dr. James Hansen putting out uh, a warning that, uh, oh, it turns out the two degree target may still lead to catastrophic sea level rise, which is information that we've talked about for quite some time. And, and Kevin Farmer particularly has been on the point of mentioning that every single time we talk about, you know, we need to worry about the two degree limit and, and the absolutely correct uh, uh, point is that we actually have no idea where that limit is. It's, it's an approximation as the two degree limit. So uh, Dr. Hansen uh, puts out this saying, hey, just it's, it, people have been treating it almost like it's a new sort of assessment of the information. No, no, he's just reminding us because we appear to have forgotten. Uh, to very mixed degrees. Of course, people interested in climate change have been putting this out, some of them misunderstanding and thinking this is a, some sort of you know, a re refinement of the data as opposed to something we've known for quite some time. Uh, and then the other reaction, of course, which was, oh, see, look at those climate scientists. They can never keep their numbers straight, which is just the world's biggest uh, Picard facepalm hmm. uh, to that one. But uh, Kevin, I give you your choice or both of things to comment on. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there's probably a whole table full of science nerds in here, and I get as excited about every kind of you know scientific discovery as anyone else. I'm, I'm always just a little amazed, though, when we get um, entirely, entirely sort of uh, excited about discovering a new species, or even the thought that microbes might exist on another planet, <laughs> or water might exist on another planet, and like this planet is covered in life and water, <laughs> and we're destroying all of it. Um, and occasionally, you know, every year, you know, a species or two is discovered and it's like, ooh, wow, that's amazing. And like every day about three go extinct. So uh, it, I'm just always I'm, – I'm as excited about these things as anyone, but I'm a, I'm a little puzzled by the disconnect. Um, and as – yeah, I – James Hansen now is is uh, on that two-degree limit. You know, he's, he's commenting – uh, Salon had, a, I think the best take on this was a line from Salon that uh, James Hansen has a history of being an alarmist and right. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, yeah, two degrees. Like even think about that number. Um, there's no way it's exactly two, right? Like that's a saleable number. 1.999. We're good, folks. We're yeah, good. no, it's not even that. It's that think about how much energy you have to pump into a planet. Like only about 5% of the total warming energy is reflected in surface temperatures, right? So the amount of energy you have to pump into a planet's atmosphere and ocean before surface temperatures go up by one degree. And yet somehow the threshold for dangerous change is exactly two. Like that's our number. That's a, that's a thing, you know, two degrees according to the Celsius measurements system right no i mean by by i can't actually quote everybody this. knows that the reason we have celsius is because those are the rules and the the uh, uh increments by which nature operates exactly and and i mean if there's a precise number for this it's probably something like 1.734 degrees celsius but they everyone said no we can't message that right so and we can't round down to one because we're there the problem and we can't <laughs> so let's just round that up to two because that makes for better message like the whole thing this two degree thing um, I always thought it was high. I always thought it was generous, without a doubt. But, I mean, that's the single most conservative thing you can say and still, like, message this at all in any sort of reason, like, in any sort of way that people will pay attention to. Uh, but, but, uh, but he, you know, he, he's commenting also recently that um, we might see uh, 10 feet or about 3 meters of sea level rise just over the next 50 years with what we're already committed to. So, you know... Uh, that's that that's that's a that's a big deal. Three meters of sea level rise over fifty years is actually a big, big deal. And the extent to which we are still not having this conversation is actually why I'm doing my 
my ballyhooed cameo today. <laughs> I mean, just a few just a few days ago, just to just to you know skewer one of my favorite news shows. Um, uh, Power and Politics was uh, doing an episode. Uh, meanwhile, at that time, we had an estimate of about thirteen thousand environmental refugees in, in Western Canada due to raging wildfires. And so I forget who <laughs> they're interchangeable avatars now. I don't even pay attention to their names. But some apologist for the Harper Conservatives was on the show, making sure we stayed afraid of ISIS. <laughs> Thirteen thousand environmental refugees in this country right now. But be afraid of jihadi extremist people because like that's that's our biggest issue. And st- and and again, that that's the message. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue, uh, Kevin, because uh, a news item we're going to get to at the end of the show is a uh, one by the title of "The Link Between Climate Change and ISIS Is Real." That'll be coming up in the s- in the third portion of the show. Oh, so now we can deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> now, what I'm wondering was: Is climate change leading the the uh, leading the charge to for action on ISIS or the reverse? You be the judge. But anyway, we'll come back to that at the end of the show. Very quick uh, update from Stefan. Uh, I hear we're almost uh, almost at the midway point through yet another cartoon the, the number two episode just yep. came out and uh, and some other stuff yeah so yeah with that we've almost basically confirmed the script I think as soon as uh, as soon as we all sit down for you know 10 minutes and look at over all the, the email exchanges uh, we'll have a final version of it Kevin has to put all the apostrophes back in right <laughs> well I need a lot of apostrophes <laughs> I think that's officially the joke that will kill Kevin today. Um, and, take the, and take the other ones out. <laughs> the, uh, some, some grammar humor here on The Green Majority? Yeah. Uh, Kevin the, Farmer is good for a lot more than just sarcastic comments, I'll yes. tell you. He also helps write my homework. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, so uh, yes, that look can probably come out. Uh, we're uh, we're shooting for August tenth, I believe is the day we're shooting for, mm-hmm. uh, and so that'll be great. The other one is already out. Please go check it out. Uh, but you also can, of course, get a wonderful T-shirt uh, from the Green Majority website. Uh, I've been I've been supporting mine as well, Darren. You'll be happy to know. I wore it a couple days ago. Yes. Um, my uh, my my dad talked about it. But the only thing I don't like about the shirt is that I can only wear it one one day a week. Mm. You should buy six more. I really I really should. Yeah. yeah. But I want to leave a few for the audience. So if you're if you're interested in getting a shirt, there's actually three ways to get one. You could just outright buy one off the website, uh, and then also we have two free ways to get one. I won't go into the details. I think we spent enough time on that. Mm. But if you're interested in a free shirt, or if you haven't seen the cartoons yet, uh, we're getting a lot of views. The first one uh, has uh, about twelve hundred. Uh, now and you know we, we don't really have it. We oh, well, we don't really have. We have zero promotional budget, so <laughs> completely sort of organically generated. Uh, quite a lot of views. People are leaving a lot of nice comments. So if you haven't seen it yet, just go to greenmajority.ca. I assure you, it will bombard you the second you hit the homepage, uh, <laughs> and you can check it out there and learn more about all the rest of the stuff. But that's about it, about it for now. Uh, we're going to go to Jason in the tech room, who's going to tell us what our music break is going to be. Okay, we're going to go to uh, a song by Danny Michelle called "Feather, Fur, and Fin." I went to the country to escape the noise and lights And I laid there in the pine cones all night I woke in the morning and all the trees were gone I got this sinking feeling, everything felt wrong There were strip malls and dollar stores and diesel in the air I slept in a rowboat and I anchored far from shore Now I don't hear them chainsaws no more I woke in the morning when someone pulled the plug I was stranded in the lake bottom's 
I love that song. I, I, I let it play out its full four minutes there because I really enjoy that song. So uh, uh, maybe we'll listen to it again soon. <laughs> uh, without further ado, though, we're going to go straight into our interview with uh, – oh, and pardon me. If you're coming back in uh, right now, you're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here on CIUT uh, or one of our wonderful community radio partners across the country. We're going to go straight into now our pre-recorded interview. Well, I would, I'm going to say more mini lecture by uh, because there are no questions. Uh, it was basically a talk, a uh, one-on-one talk that was given by Dr. Gordon Edwards, who's the head and founder of the uh, Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. It is excellent. I don't want anyone to uh, to think for a moment that oh here you know it's going to be you know it's going to be a long talk. It was very very interesting. He basically explains his growing up into becoming an anti-nuclear activist and and I think justifies uh, his case for his position in the case. So if you're if you're not entirely on board with this, uh, you may still not be at the end, but I think it would be you'd be you could do worse than than to hear out Dr. Edwards on how he became a nuclear activist. So without further ado, here we go is Dr. Gordon Edwards. Hi, I'm Gordon Edwards, uh, president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. I grew up here in Toronto. My dad was a pharmacist, and I went to the University of Toronto and graduated in mathematics, physics, and chemistry with a gold medal in mathematics and physics. 
At that time, I thought nuclear power was great because the only thing I knew about it was that it was safe, clean, cheap, and abundant. And as a result, I thought, hey, this is great. It's going to save the world. And in fact, that was how it was presented in high school at that time. That was back in the, in the 50s. Um, but at, when I graduated from university, I discovered that none of these adjectives were in fact true that it's actually one of the dirtiest technologies that we know. It creates the most dangerous waste of any industry ever on the face of the planet. And this waste is indestructible and remains dangerous for literally millions of years. And we don't know what to do with it except to bury it somewhere and hope that it won't get out. That's not a very good recommendation for a technology. Secondly, uh, it can undergo, as we've seen at Chernobyl, at uh, Fukushima, it can undergo catastrophic failures and the reason this happens is fundamental. It's because you cannot generate electricity with uranium without simultaneously generating huge quantities of radioactive poisons. And these radioactive poisons are all, you might say, transmutations of the uranium atom. For example, people have heard about Fukushima. They've heard about the poisons that have come out of that, the cesium-137, the iodine-131, the strontium-90, the krypton-85, the plutonium-239. What people don't always realize is that every one of these elements started off as a uranium atom. And most of that uranium came here from Canada. In fact, it came from Saskatchewan, went over to Japan, was used as fuel, and was transformed into literally hundreds of different highly radioactive poisonous materials, which are then spewed out in the event of the accident and are still leaking today from the reactor. They're still pumping. This is four and a half years after the accident. They're still pumping almost 400 tons of water a day down into the cores of those melted reactors, the three melted reactors, and then back up to the surface again. And by the time they get to the surface, they're saturated with these radioactive materials. And the water is so radioactive that it can't be released, so they've stored it in 1,500 tanks, huge tanks, each one containing about 300 tons, and uh, they're building more every week because uh, they, they need them. And so this is the, the, the legacy of the nuclear industry. Now, here in Ontario and here in Canada, we got started into this project through the World War II atomic bomb project. Canada was one of the three countries involved in the project to develop the world's first atomic weapons. And in fact, there was an agreement signed in Quebec in 1943 between President, uh, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill uh, at the invitation of our Prime Minister, Mackenzie King at the time, uh, for these three countries to cooperate in building the world's first atomic bombs. And the reason why Canada was involved is because we had the uranium, and the uranium is the key material for all nuclear weapons. There wouldn't be any nuclear weapons of any description if we didn't have uranium to start with. So Canada got involved very early and in great secrecy. Uh, C.D. Howe, who was the, the power behind the throne in Canada at that time, uh, he told Parliament that there was a secret project underway and he would appreciate it if nobody asked questions. And so nobody did. And so Parliament from that day to this has never really questioned our commitment to nuclear power and to uranium mining in this country. Uh, that's one of the reasons why my organization, which was founded in 1970, uh, one of the first things we asked for was for there to be a national debate 
on the benefits and the hazards of nuclear power. We're quite willing to have everything out on the table, both the pluses and the minuses, so that people can judge for themselves. That's never happened in Canada. So what happened is when they started building nuclear reactors in Ontario with the Pickering reactors, in Quebec with the Gentilly reactors, and in uh, New Brunswick with the Point Le Pro reactor, nobody knew at that time that the radioactive waste problem was a serious difficulty. Everybody thought that it was just like, well, it's like any industry has garbage, and the garbage men take it away, and it's gone. And nobody thought of it as being a particularly great problem. So my organization was one of the first ones to blow the whistle on this question. I remember being on television here in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Toronto, and Mark Morton Schulman, who used to be the coroner of Toronto and who then had a radio talk show and a television talk show, had me on the show along with an executive from Ontario Hydro. And uh, I said, well, uh, we have this problem with nuclear waste. And he said, well, what's the problem? And the Ontario Hydro guy said, well, I mean, every industry has nuclear waste, so I don't see that it's a problem. We look after our waste better than any other industry I know of. And so Martin Schulman turned back to me and he said, so what is the problem? I said, well, ask them where they're going to put it. And he turned back and said, where are you going to put it? And the guy went beat red. He said, oh, you don't know. <laughs> and that's, that's when really, literally, you might say, it hit the fan. Because they had a Royal Commission of Inquiry into nuclear power. Well, it's actually a nuclear, uh, into uranium, into electricity planning. It's called the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Electric Power Planning in Ontario. And it was called the Porter Commission. It lasted for three years. And they devoted a lot of that time into looking at the nuclear question. And they were very impressed by the dangers of this nuclear waste. And I'll explain a little bit more about that danger in a second. But what they concluded, one of their major conclusions was that unless they can solve this problem by 1985, there shouldn't be any more nuclear reactors built. This was in 1978, that report was written. In 1978, unless they can solve this nuclear waste problem, there shouldn't be any more nuclear reactors. So, and in fact, there have not been any new nuclear reactors ordered anywhere in Canada since 1978. So in fact, we have brought the industry to a standstill simply by asking the question, where are you gonna put it? They don't have a place to put it. Now, why is it so important? Well, the reason why is because they had a chart in this uh, Royal Commission report which showed the toxicity, the, the danger to humans and to other living organisms of these nuclear waste. And what they did was they took one year waste from one can-do reactor, just one year, one can-do reactor, and they looked at how dangerous that waste would be after one year. And they said, well, since we don't have a very easy way to measure it, let's ask the following question. How much water would you need to dilute that waste to the maximum level of contamination allowed by law. So uh, you know, how much water would you need? Turns out to be almost exactly equal to the Lake Superior. That's one reactor, one year. And uh, multiply that now by the number of reactors, which is 20. Multiply it by the number of years, which is 30. You're talking about 600 Lake Superiors. That's a lot of Lake Superiors. We don't have that much water in the whole world. So uh, what they were uh, basically saying is that this material is so dangerous that if 1% or 0.1% or 0.01% of this material leaks into the environment, it's a disaster. 
Whereas in most human affairs, you'd think that 99.9% containment would be wonderful. In this case, it would be a disaster. So that's what's fundamentally wrong with nuclear power, is that it creates these poisons and we don't know how to destroy them. Nobody knows how to turn off radioactivity. Nobody knows how to shut it off. And the result is it keeps... And what is radioactivity? Basically, these atoms that are broken pieces of uranium atoms or else transmuted heavier than uranium atoms, like plutonium, these atoms are unstable, which means that they are like little miniature time bombs. They explode. And when they explode, they give off damaging subatomic shrapnel, which is called atomic radiation. And this exists in three major kinds, alpha, beta, and gamma, three... Uh, alpha and beta are not very penetrating, but they're extremely dangerous inside the body. In fact, they're much more dangerous than the more penetrating gamma radiation. Uh, gamma radiation is very dangerous too. But uh, in fact, one fuel bundle, which is about this big, it's about the size of a fuel pe- uh, uh, a log for a fireplace, one of those fuel bundles, before it goes into the reactor, you could look at it and handle it with gloves, and it wouldn't harm you. When that same fuel bundle comes out of the reactor, it would kill any human being standing within one meter's distance without protection in 20 seconds. So that's how, and that's just because of the blast of gamma radiation coming off that spent fuel rod. In fact, those spent fuel rods, those spent fuel bundles, when they come out of the reactor, they'll never be handled by human hands again. They'll only be handled robotically by robots or or by uh, remote equipment. So how do we get into this? How do we build so many nuclear reactors? The fact is, people were lied to. They were told that this was a clean, safe, cheap, abundant energy source. And that's what I thought when I was in high school. If that's all you know about nuclear power, who could possibly be against it? So these were built on false premises, these reactors. And uh, I think now the time has come when people are more and more realizing that this is all a big lie, and that uh, we made a big mistake in swallowing that lie and going along with it, because we trusted the scientists, thinking that the scientists were sort of like gods, that the scientists, because they're scientists, they are devoted to truth, they're devoted to honesty, and that a scientist would not say anything that was untrue, But they're forgetting that scientists are human beings, and all human beings are fallible, and all human beings have vested interests. And if your whole career, and in fact, the dream of your career, is really this technology, you can't afford to tell the whole truth about it. And this is the way the nuclear industry has always behaved. It's paternalism written with a capital P, because they believe that we... We scientists, we nuclear scientists, we can, in fact, look after these wastes. We can prevent reactors from exploding. We can prevent all the bad effects. For example, we can prevent these materials from being used in atomic weapons. In fact, they cannot do this. This is beyond human power. And because they thought that they were able to control this, they thought that it's no harm to tell people reassuring lies to tell people it's perfectly safe because we're going to make it perfectly safe, that the waste cannot, can, is not a problem because we're going to solve it. But what they were doing was putting on their shoulders a kind of an arrogance that is beyond their powers to actually realize. So we're now at the showdown stage, and uh, we have countries like Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Sweden, 
and a few other countries who are uh, totally phasing out of nuclear power. Germany had 17 nuclear reactors. The moment the Fukushima reactor accident happened and that triple meltdown, they shut down seven of those reactors permanently, and they're in the process of shutting down the remaining 10 over the next, but by the year 2022, they should have them all shut down. Here in Canada, although we haven't said that we're phasing out of nuclear power, in fact, we seem to be. Because at Pickering, where we had eight nuclear reactors, two of them are now permanently shut down, and the other six are going to be shut down by the year 2020. So eight of those reactors are going to be gone permanently uh, by 2020. And even though the government of Ontario has said they're going to build new reactors, they have not and they have postponed this and postponed it because the cost is absolutely exorbitant. It turns out that they spent billions of dollars in refurbishing some of the old reactors, and these refurbished reactors are operating at about a 65% capacity factor. That means they're only operating a little more than than two-thirds of the time compared with what they're designed to operate at. So uh, more and more, uh, the planners and the government authorities are beginning to catch on to the idea that this is a bad deal. And at the moment, we're trying to convince the government of Ontario, and there already have been talks between the Premier of Quebec and the Premier of Ontario, one-to-one talks, about, look, rather than taking a further risk on refurbishing the Darlington reactors, the four big reactors outside of Toronto, at Darlington, rather than refurbishing these at a cost of billions of dollars, why not buy surplus hydropower from Quebec? We've got huge surpluses of water-generated hydropower. Now, that was not environmentally innocuous at all. There was a lot of damage done to the environment in building those dams. But now that they're built, we do have surplus hydropower. There's no harm in using that surplus hydropower as long as it isn't used to justify more damage of the same kind. In the meantime, Ontario can actually do itself a favor. It would cost far less to buy this surplus hydropower than it would be to refurbish those reactors. They can also do Quebec a favor, who is now selling that surplus hydropower to the United States at a loss. And, uh, and you could also do, the, well, the people of the country a favor by uh, getting rid of this liability. But we have many ways to produce electricity. We've got wind power, we've got solar energy, we've got hydropower, we've got... Even pedaling your bicycle generates electricity. Turning a wheel will generate electricity. Uh, Geothermal power. So uranium is not really needed for electricity. It's just one of many ways, and uh, we don't really need it. As a matter of fact, the contribution of nuclear to electricity production worldwide has declined steadily since 1995. In 1995, it was about 17% of world electricity that was produced by nuclear. Now it's down to 11% and still falling. And in fact, even the most optimistic pro-nuclear people are admitting that it will that nuclear will continue to decline in importance for the next 20, 30 years at least, because no matter how many new reactors you build, they're going to be shutting down the old ones faster than they can build the new ones. Most of them are old and most of them are falling apart and they're being shut down much faster. So there's no way that nuclear power can make a dent in global warming in the time frame we're talking about. On the other hand, if you take a look at a specific example such as Germany, Germany decided uh, basically, well, especially since 2011, they've decided to phase out of nuclear power. In only eight years, they built 30,000 megawatts of wind power. 
Now, that's twice the entire installed capacity of nuclear power in Canada. 15,000 megawatts. If all the reactors were running and, and producing at, at top capacity, would have 15,000 megawatts of nuclear electricity. Germany built 30,000 megawatts of wind power in eight years. There's no way you could build that amount of nuclear power in eight years. It's impossible. So, uh, and, and when you think about it, you realize, let's, let's imagine that you could build 30,000 megawatts of nuclear in eight years. Well, and during that entire eight years, you would have no benefit. In fact, you'd be adding to global warming because building the concrete structures, mining the uranium, refining the uranium, and enriching the uranium, global, global gases, greenhouse gases would be emitted big time in building these reactors, you would get no electricity until after the eight years was done. Then they would start producing electricity. With wind power, you build some windmills now, you get immediate benefits. Next year, you get more. Next year, you get more. Next year, more, more, more. And after eight years, you build your way up to 30,000 megawatts, but you're getting benefits all the way along the line. So you can see the difference here is that these renewables are much more flexible. They're light on their feet. They're like boxers that can you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and they can sort of solve the problem, whereas nuclear is lumbering along and is really unable to respond quickly enough to make a difference. There's another thing, too. If after a while you decide you don't like those windmills, what do you do? Take them down. No problem. You can't do that with nuclear power. When the, by the time a nuclear reactor is finished or you decide you don't want it, you're stuck with it. Because it's a radioactive hulk. Even after you take the nuclear waste out of it, the structure itself is so radioactive, you have to let it cool off for about 40 years, and then you have to dismantle it, and all the rubble becomes radioactive waste. So you end up with, with a, a huge cost in the future, even after all the benefits have been squandered. So you don't have that with any other energy technology that, that I'm aware of. So... Uh, that's where I think that, that simple economics combined with simple common sense, combined with a real sense of responsibility to the future, is combining to really put an end to the nuclear age. All right, and that's where we'll leave it. As I said, uh, in case you're tuning in uh, during that, you're, you are listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here on CIUT 89.5 FM or possibly on one of our partner stations. Uh, we're going to uh, go directly into our, uh, our music break here in one second. But uh, as I said, that was an abbreviated version of the interview. If you were interested in what he was saying, I actually took most of the beginning and part of the end because I wanted to get to his, uh, his comments there about renewable energy and, and nuclear as, a, as an answer to, to climate change. Make sure I got that on the air. Uh, if you have any comments, questions or suggestions about that you can email us uh, as well and then please do you go to the website greenmajority.ca uh, where you will be able to listen to that again and hear the unedited version the, the full uh, 32 minute version of that uh, scare quotes interview uh, we're going to go right to our music break here and we'll come back we've got some more news items and I want to get uh, Kevin to, uh, and Stefan to comment on that interview briefly as well so without further ado Jason what is our second and final music break this week we are going to go to a song by Winter Sleep a band from Nova Scotia and the song is called Jaws of Life.
to cut that song a little bit shorter i do love winter sleep we were just talking about how much we like winter sleep over the break there but we have some more stuff we want to get to so we're coming right back into it here in the final segment here on the green majority this week uh i want to get a a quick comment if any um specifically on the portion there because the the past couple times uh that we had dr edwards on he uh he didn't talk so much about sort of the the question of like well what about the argument of uh nuclear power to solve climate change you know it might be terrible but it can't be as terrible as climate change so what about that and uh, we did get a couple comments of people wondering about that so he did uh, actually entirely unprompted more or less uh answer that question this week and i, I want to go to my, my co-hosts here to, to see if, were you satisfied uh with his argument there let's uh let's start with kevin oh yeah um you know over the years i've commented um mostly just as a a way to contextualize the severity of climate change i've i've opined over the years that uh, I, that was an excellent interview, and I have no love for nuclear energy for all of the reasons that Dr. Edwards just spelled out. It's, it's a disaster. Um, but <laughs> climate change is actually worse. <laughs> and uh, over the years, I've said, yeah, if, if the path to zero carbon, if the fastest possible path to zero carbon included nuclear in, as part of the mix, then under that exact scenario, my support for nu- so quote unquote support for nuclear energy or opposite let's call it opposition to climate change <laughs> it extends to that. But but in recent years, as he pointed out quite rightly, um, the the gains we've made in solar and wind energy have been phenomenal, like truly exponential growth. Uh, so you know that that question has been mooted now, or that that particular scenario has been mooted for the reasons he just pointed out. You could not. You couldn't now, under that scenario, if you were to commit to the fastest possible path to zero carbon, nuclear no longer would be a sensible way to do that because you could bring so much more other renewable capacity online faster. Yeah, the ar- so, that, and that ar- was it. The argument on the argument for that ran out about ten years ago, basically. It started to, you know, yeah. like like ten yeah. years ago, we didn't. We just didn't. We just didn't have the buy-in that we we've got today, and and the gain the gains in solar and wind have been phenomenal. They really have, like the mm. the the energy efficiency, the, the the efficiency with which they convert uh, wind and solar energy into electricity, 
the, the it's one of those things. It, it, more infrastructure for this kind of thing begets more infrastructure. It has been, it, mm. it, you know, over the last few years, like actual exponential growth. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, it, under under that specific scenario, I, my opposition to climate change exceeds my opposition <laughs> to nuclear power, and uh, and I've said that over the years. But but he's pointed out, yeah, and I agree that that the the events have outpaced that particular hypothetical. It's no longer relevant anymore. Mm. And I'm assuming from your furious head nodding that that's a violent agreement, Stefan. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I was gonna, I was gonna jump into the only other thing about that nu- nuclear power is that it, it is, it is made for the grid we have now. Which is actually, what the what the climate cartoon we're about to do is is is, uh, is all about. Psychic Stefan. Um, is that the <laughs> nuclear power is uh, right? Is is centralized? It has long grids. It's it's it is created in a hard path energy system. Mm. Uh, whereas at, there's, the more and more we see the advantages of, of having power closer to where it needs to go. Uh, you know, as, as as blackouts start occurring more and more because our, our aging energy grid is energy infrastructure is hitting us, uh, we'll see the sort of advantages of having smaller distributed power sources. Uh, which renewables can provide, uh, and uh, that's that's and, where we're going. And that's a bit of a complex topic, though, Stefan. Do you have anywhere you'd recommend where people could learn oh, more? About it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> that. That was a not so subtle commercial for our climate cartoons, with which the episode we are currently in producing addresses the very question that Stefan yes. was just outlining there. So you can learn more about this climate cartoons. Go to greenmajority.ca for that. But. We have only about 11 minutes left. Uh, I have two news items I want to talk about, but first we were going to give Kevin his time for the reason he came in today. Uh, he had something on his mind, so go right ahead, Kevin. Yeah, well, hi, everyone. And uh, uh, full, Okay, so full disclosure, I'm, I, I, I have joined the silly season, and <laughs> I am once again the uh, federal Green Party of Canada candidate in my home riding of St. Paul's here in Toronto. Whoop. <laughs> Yay, me. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I, and I'm not here to stump. <laughs> I'm just here. I have to say that now. <laughs> uh, and there might even be uh, issues with me appearing on the show as a, as a pundit. Well, now, now you're a guest as opposed to a co-host. Yeah, you're exactly. Yeah. temporarily a guest. We, we might have to hand out invitations to everyone else for equal time. I don't know how it works, but I just, I mean, for the it's, sake... It, oh, no, I'm in, in, all, in, in all seriousness, if any of the other candidates from other parties in your writing wish to come on the air, that I will I officially give them an invitation right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would be all for that, too. I'm just, like I say, I'm not here to stump. I'm just not here to stump, but but I have to say that. And the last the last comment I made before taking my latest hiatus from the show is, like, we've got an election coming up, folks. And we just simply have to make climate change an election issue. Uh, I, I don't know how to do that. So I decided to do it. <laughs> like, I just don't know how to do this. I, I opine on the show. I write letters to the Toronto Star. I, 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 I have campaigned in the past. I just don't know what else to do. And I figured, well, I honestly feel like we're just, we're just like right up against it here. This, it, we're, we've got Paris coming up. I think I think if we have a commitment in Paris to achieve some sort of path to zero or zero carbon as quickly as humanly possible, frankly, that's that's what's required now. If we leave this another, you know, we just can't put this off anymore. There's just not there's no point in even contextualizing this anymore, folks. And I honestly, I'm, I've been going around and around on this issue. Like, I mean, I'm, I, I have every intention of making this a campaign issue. Um, uh, among other issues that need to be discussed. But I think this is like, you know, this is the elephant in the room in, in every card. I was wondering, you know, how do you do this, right? Like, how do you how do you actually have this conversation about how serious and how urgent climate change is without, like, overwhelming everyone and tuning them out? And I, I was chuckling the other night. I was thinking maybe I should run as, like, 
a green terminator <laughs> and i'm i'm here from a future of environmental collapse i've been sent back to the past <laughs> to avoid this future of of climate uh, disaster and my campaign slogan should be something like Vote for me if you want to live. Oh, I was, I was actually going to say, and only 1% of our audience will get this, but uh, I, I was going to call you, does that mean we get to call you Bishop? Ooh, mm. little X-Men. <laughs> oh, even that one, when I, 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 you know, I didn't think anyone would get the Terminator joke, but even I don't get that one. I took so. it down another layer. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just, uh, you know, that's, that's what I've been musing about ever since I went on break, and that was my last comment, and uh, it was, that's what I walked out the door thinking, and this is my only response to it. So today it's just, it's just reaching out to people to say, look, we, we, we have to make this an election issue. We just have, the gloves simply have to come off in this fight. We've, we've, we've got a federal government that is committed to climate change collaboration, I mean, they've muzzled scientists. Uh, they've 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 stripped funding from from research and monitoring. We don't even our 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 our, our news media for the most part are entirely missing on this file. And you know we're losing this fight, and we're going to lose this fight without even firing a shot at the rate we're going. And again, I, I, I you know, if anyone's got some suggestions for him about how to how to communicate urgency without uh, well, without like frying people, <laughs> without overwhelming people with despair, uh, I'm entirely open to doing that because we simply have to do this. Yeah. Well, and and that opens me up to to two of the two of the other things I wanted to mention quickly this week. So we can, we can keep going, but I just want to insert this here. Uh, one of them was that uh, was I got in, got into uh, I commented on somebody's comment on a Smog blog article about uh, whatever something about climate change. Recently, I forgot the specific article was but their response was no no uh with with using uh tesla batteries and uh renewable energy we can actually lower the emissions of the oil sands enough that we can keep using them to which i nearly put my fist through my face from face palming so hard <laughs> if we have the technology and that's what this is what i don't understand about how just incredibly either thick or disingenuous some people are on this issue is if we have the technology to lower the tar sands emissions to the point the fact that they say that was true we're talking about advanced enough renewable energy that we don't need it in the first place i don't understand why this is so complicated well this is this is part partly what alarms me about you know, undertaking this thing about trying to make it an actual campaign issue is that, you know, if you move in the circles we move in, <laughs> people are fairly informed and, and have been keeping up with this issue for years. Uh, meanwhile, if you, you know, put your ear to the ground in like mainstream media, uh, you know, and shout out to the star, I pick on them all the time, but their editorials on climate change have been, you know, very on point, well ahead of the curve. If uh, I they may, I they think... still don't have an environment section. Hello, Toronto Star. Mm -hmm. you, and no one else does, but they still don't have, you know what I mean? Like still the disconnect, even for that, like maybe one of the best, an editorial department that is routinely on point with this issue still is part of a paper that doesn't have an actual environment section, which I think, you know, again, just speaks to the disconnect that, 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 that we live in in this world where, uh, you know, so, so yeah, and, you know, if you just put your ear to the ground with, like, general sort of news media in this country, this discussion just isn't happening. It, it just really still isn't happening. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was just going to interject there that I think the reason partially as well that you take the time to pick on the Toronto Star was that they're worth picking on in the sense that they do – 
still, despite publishing a bunch of nonsense, do publish your stuff and right. So it's not it's not hopeless. It's not like you're 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 emailing uh, the Green Party platform to the Toronto Sun or anything like that. Like there's at least a point to even bothering to pick on them in the sense that there's a chance that they can be pushed in the right direction. Well, I think I think editorially they they're you know completely on point. I'm not picking on them for that. I'm just sort of pointing out that in the context, like just relative to you know the general lack of awareness in today's world about you know the the fact that I mean we just we need things like. I mean, you know, sure, sure. The planet, it's given us oxygen, water, soil, biodiversity, a stable climate. But what has it done for us lately? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I mean, we need these things and we're, we're breaking things we can't fix. And, you know, I've tried this analogy on this show before. If I haul one of the tires off your car while you're driving down the highway, witness the crash, the subsequent damage to you and everything else. And they go, Ooh, well, that was a bad idea. I know. I'll fix this by putting the tire back on the car. <laughs> that doesn't work. And in the case of like, you know, destroying things like water and species and soil, soil, uh, you know, in that case, you don't even have the tire left. Like you can't even put the tire back on the car and like maybe try to bang the dents out of it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just, it's just, it just, again, I, I am deeply puzzled by this, but our disconnect about how thoroughly we depend on what we now laughably refer to as ecological services <laughs> Is 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 stunning, and we just simply can't keep breaking these the the life support mechanisms on our spaceship. All right, and so uh, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to mention we have like six news ad- uh, articles that we pull in each week. Uh, I, we never get through them all, but I do post them, and essentially they're my picks for some of the uh, most interesting uh, or thought provoking pieces that came across my desk this week. So they're always published on the on the blog. Do check out the website if you want to see sort of my picks for some of the most interesting environment news of the week. Uh, the two we're going to try and get through real fast. One of them uh, we only essentially have time for a quick comment, but uh, we'll go to Stefan for it as well, which was uh, uh, Democratic presidential American candidate Martin O'Malley linked climate change to the rise of ISIS earlier this week uh, to, of course, the explosion of just usual American political election nonsense. Uh, but this is a demonstrable link. There, It is not facetious or bending the truth or, or even stretching the truth to say that the, a significant, i.e. top two uh, reason, uh, top two reason for uh, ISIS existing and being a threat to world stability right now is climate change through Drought, right? Also, uh, this is a, this is exactly links perfectly what Kevin was saying. But how do we get this to be an issue? This is someone trying to make climate change people something cares about. They were like, you know what people care about? The word ISIS. How can any people think about this? I know. I'll have them in the same sentence. This is a genius idea. <laughs> I'm going like, to write an article tomorrow. Donald Trump caused climate change. It would be published. <laughs> um, like I think the, the what's interesting about this though is the same. You, the headline could also just read: Senator agrees with Pentagon. Yeah. Which would not get published <laughs> because it's a much less interesting headline. No, no. If it said Democratic uh, senator agrees with Pentagon, it might. Uh, maybe. The, I don't pe- think the Pentagon has been saying th- things like this for the last 16 years exactly. in, in, in their quadrennial uh, uh, defense review. Oh, I forget what it's called. The quadrennial defense review. Every four years, they put out their short list of threats. And for the last 16 years, they've been shortlisting climate change. In, in not the last one, but the 2010 version, it had its own section t- titled Climate Change. And they just say, look, basically, when you start destabilizing society with, you know, those luxuries like food and water and political stability and, and whatnot, uh, you get mass migration, you get, you get all, like, you just get what we've seen throughout history. And this is an environment that breeds extremism. And they call it a threat multiplier. 
but it's 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 just a it's just another significant downward pressure on on geopolitical stability. Well, if you want to see the power of money in politics, understand that the only two, only place in which the Republican Party disagrees with uh, religious officials and and the Pentagon, and the Pentagon <laughs> is climate change. Yeah, uh, that's all the time we have for. And the only thing I want to mention, just because I want you to go and look at it, uh, we didn't have time to talk about it, but go check it out. Is a, a very excellent uh, uh, article from the Friends of Canadian Broadcasting about Harper trying to destroy the CBC and not at some fictitious future date. It's in the plans, folks. It's on the tracks and it's heading to a town near you. Check out that and the rest of the information about the show, greenmajority.ca, but that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for joining us. Have a good green week and we'll talk to you all real soon. 